Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him, uh, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had uh, followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Jesus took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. We come this morning to Matthew's account of the death of Jesus. Here is how Jesus died. And what stands out is that there's little, uh, little here about the mechanics of his death. There's virtually no space given at all to the facts, the details about crucifixion. Nothing about the physical torment involved in it. You probably know crucifixion is among the most cruel, if not the most cruel, that thing that one human being can inflict upon another. 
You'd be laid down on the ground and nails would be driven through your wrists, not necessarily your hands, a little lower uh, on your wrists so that uh, that's the best place for you to uh, stay on the cross. The thick nails driven through your wrists. Then they would hoist you hanging from that board up onto another board, attach it, and then nail your feet uh, to the cross as well. People hung on the cross for hours, if not days. And the reason that people crucified victims died was actually from asphyxiation. Uh, it, it, you would eventually run out of the energy necessary to lift your head and to push down on the, the, the nail in your feet, to push down on that to lift yourself enough to breathe. So people eventually uh, died from asphyxiation. I haven't seen the study myself, but I have been told that years ago they did an experiment where they, where they took world-class athletes and tied them to crosses to see, uh, to measure their response and how uh, they endured it, and not many of them lasted long before demanding to be taken down. None of that agony is here. In fact, the, the, Matthew mentions the crucifixion in a, in a subordinate, here's a grammar phrase, a subordinate clause. Look at verse 35. That's where it's mentioned. It says, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The main verb, they divided up his clothes. How did they do it? By casting lots. When did they do it? When they crucified him. Almost as if that's a It's just a marker here in the text and not the central detail. Either the gospel writers believe that crucifixion speaks for itself and that um, uh, you would read it and understand the, the, the great physical torment here, or the gospel writers are interested in speaking to us about the greater significance of the death of Jesus. The Romans crucified thousands of people during their reign. And there are human beings who have endured worse physical suffering uh, in the process of dying. But no one died like this. No one died like Jesus died. This morning from this text, I would like to share with you five circumstances of his death. How did Jesus die? Five things. Number one, Jesus died in weakness, in weakness. I suppose this is a physical circumstance. It's the only one that we're going to touch on today. Verse 32 tells us as they were going out of the city, Jesus and the other two uh, people who were being crucified and the Roman soldiers who were guarding them, as they were moving out of the city, uh, they were headed to Golgotha, which uh, means the place of the skull. Some of you might have wondered about this at some point in time. The word skull in Latin is calvaria, and that's where the word Calvary comes from. Where does Calvary come from? Calvary is a Latin translation of skull, which is a uh, translation of the word Golgotha. And it's called the place of the skull, either because that's where it's, its purpose, its purpose is there to, is to execute people, or because of the shape of the topography, it looked like a scully place. They were going out of the city. Matthew doesn't emphasize this, but the author of Hebrews finds great significance in the fact that they're going out. Look what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 11. He writes, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. 
Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. They're going out. And it was the practice of the Romans to make the crucified, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, those sentenced to crucifixion carry their cross, not the, the vertical pole, but the horizontal beam. But think the Lord Jesus, he's been up all night. He's endured six trials. He's been beaten by the chief priests, the, the, the guards of the chief priests. He's been flogged. He's been beaten also and, uh, by the Roman soldiers and, and he just can't carry that cross. So they grab Simon from Cyrene to carry it. We don't know very much about Simon. He's from Cyrene. Cyrene is a part of modern-day Libya, northern Africa. Church tradition has often depicted Simon as an African man, but we don't know about that. He's in Jerusalem. Presumably, he's going into the city to prepare for his own family's Passover celebration. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that Simon has two sons, Alexander and Rufus, and Mark presumably included that detail because there were people who would read the gospel of Mark who knew Alexander and Rufus. And Romans chapter 16 makes reference to a Christian by the name of Rufus who lived in Rome. So some people think that Simon's family, either they were believers or maybe because of this event, they became followers of Jesus. What's striking to me, notice this is the scene. Simon is carrying the cross in this procession, this horrible procession, and he's following Jesus to the place of execution. Simon is literally doing what Jesus told us that disciples would do. Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Be forewarned, think carefully while we consider this passage. Matthew wants you to know he wrote this detail down here about Simon carrying the cross He wants you to realize and think again about the fact that even before you read this account of what the Lord Jesus endured, this is your path if you're a follower of Jesus. Carrying the cross, following him in his path. You're supposed to read this passage and think about the implications for you. Jesus said at the end of the gospel of Matthew, go and make disciples. And in Matthew 16, he says, this is what a disciple does. A disciple is someone who carries their cross and follows me, who bears the humiliation of walking my path. This is what you publicly acknowledged. This is what you publicly accepted when you got baptized. We were there to watch you get baptized, and we were celebrating, the the members of of your church, this church, we were celebrating forgiveness of sins. Yes, sins are washed away, and you were professing your faith. You were saying also, though, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've decided to follow him without turning back, and I recognize it is a cross-bearing life. It's what you proclaim when you partake of the Lord's Supper. We eat bread and we drink juice that symbolizes a broken body and a shed blood. We don't partake of symbols that point in the way of a trophy or of a medal or of a key to the city. We eat symbols of brokenness and death 
Because Jesus said, if you want to be one of my disciples, you have to carry, my cro- carry a cross and follow me. I mention that because some of us have the notion, and I wish it were true, I really wish it were true, but some of us have the notion that if we're just more like Jesus in this world and less like some of the other Christians we know, you know, you know who I'm talking about, right? Those people who are Christians but are jerks about it. If, if, we, were more, if we were more like Jesus and less like those blessed brothers and sisters about whom it's so easy to be self-righteous because they're Christians and jerks, if we were just more like Jesus and not like them, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't have to suffer this humiliation. And, and following Jesus would be nothing but um, rainbows and sunshine. And people would respect us and, and, and love us and, and, and we wouldn't get harassed and rejected. And uh, uh, it would be easy, easier. There are followers of Jesus that I do not want to model my life after. There are followers of Jesus who follow him in ways that I don't like, and sometimes I am that one. But you can be unlike them entirely and not escape this path to which the Lord Jesus has called us. This is his path. This is the way he called us to walk. And Simon here is at the beginning of this account to remind us, here we are carrying the cross Jesus died in weakness. Secondly, notice here, Jesus died in shame. Jesus died in shame. The text wants us to emphasize here, to see, Matthew emphasizes the universal rejection of Jesus. And there's a lot of elements about this, heaping upon him shame, derision, mockery, rejection. There's a number of the elements that we can think about here. First, there's the drink that they offered him. It's in verse 34. They offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. Now, sour wine like this, they use it later, was popular among the Roman soldiers. They would especially drink it during crucifixion. You have to be, I think, half drunk in order to crucify someone. So they had this wine on hand and somebody put some gall. Gall emphasizes its taste, bitter, bitterness. And uh, Mark emphasizes the recipe. Mark, the gospel, talks about myrrh. But this is bitter drink that they offer to Jesus. And there's two thoughts about it. On the one hand, there are some people who think that perhaps this drink is an anesthetic. An anesthetic uh, that they would often give to crucifixion victims before they hung them on the cross. Give them this painkiller so that they can, so it's not quite so bad. Look at Proverbs, uh, you, we can look at Proverbs 31, and then there are other references in Hebrew, script, in Hebrew tradition to this. Proverbs 31, 6 and 7. Let beer be for those who are perishing, wine for those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. That's not the way Baptists are used to talking about alcohol. <laughs> but here it is in Proverbs 31. Painkiller, painkiller, anesthetic. There are some people, though, who think that it's not just an anesthetic, that that's not the point here, that the point here is mocking by the soldiers. Have you ever had someone give you baker's chocolate? (laughs) They they hand you a piece of candy and say, hey, do you want some candy? And you say, yeah, I'd love some chocolate. And you pop it in your mouth. Oh, it's terrible. There's no sugar in baker's chocolate. And it's so, so bitter. It's so bitter. Jesus, are you thirsty? Some sly Roman soldier says, here, here's something to drink. This will really wet your whistle. They give him this bitter, bitter gall, mockery. 
I'm not sure which is, is going on here. Jesus spits it out. If it's, an, if it's bitterness, we understand. If it's mockery, we understand why he spits it out. That's not funny. If it's, if it's anesthetic, he spits it out, I think, because at this point in time, he doesn't want to lose his senses and dishonor God while he hangs on the cross. Shame. Then there's the issue of his clothes. When you're crucified, if you are part of a crucifixion detail uh, and you bring any possessions to the crucifixion, you're not going to need them anymore. And the soldiers, this is one of their perks. They get to take what you have as their own possessions. And there's, uh, they, they divide them. Then they have to gamble over what's left, what couldn't be divided. Here we have one of the references in this passage, one of the allusions from Matthew to the Psalm 22. You're probably familiar with this. But look at Psalm 22, verse 16. Look what it says. Psalm 22, 16 says, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. There are a lot of allusions to the Hebrew scriptures in this passage. Uh, I'm going to show them uh, a few of them to you. But notice here, I think they're here because Matthew wants you to know, you might be tempted to think that at this point in time, God is losing, that the chief priests are winning, that Pilate is winning, the crowds are winning, and God is losing. But oh no, no, his plans are coming to fruition. Everything that he planned is coming to fruition. His clothes, then there's the sign, the sign they hang above his head. You have to go deep into the weeds to understand, or to know this, I suppose, not to understand it, but to know it. There are some people who think the Romans used to crucify also on X-shaped crosses instead of what we're more familiar with, the T-shaped cross. And there's debate, was Jesus crucified on an X-shaped cross or on a T-shaped cross? Well, this passage says that the sign uh, no, noting his crime was above his head, indicating probably it was more like the T-shape than an X-shape. And here's his crime. He was crucified for a political reason. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, you know that a Roman wrote this, not a Jew, because a Jew would say, this is Jesus, the king of Israel, not the king of the Jews. And it too is a sign of mockery. A mockery, not just of, of Jesus, but of the Jews themselves. Oh, you got a king, do you? Let me show you what the Romans do to your king. Anybody else want to be the king of the Jews? We'll show you what we do to them. Then there's the crucifixion with these rebels, my translation says in verse 38. Your translation might say robbers. It might say thieves. It's a tricky word to translate. Uh, terrorists even would be an acceptable translation. Uh, revolutionaries, armed insurrectionists. Well, they were crucified with him. And Jesus is right there in the middle of them. That's mockery too. Why? Because Jesus doesn't belong with these men. I've seen a lot of television shows and a lot of movies where there's this, a, a scene that happens. It's supposed to be funny. Um, I think I've even seen it in a Bugs Bunny cartoon or two. But, but the hero of the story, uh, 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 the, the, a mild-mannered, shy, kind of uh, a passive guy is arrested for the wrong crime and he's put in the holding cell. 
And he walks in the holding cell, and there's stereotypes all over this, I understand. But he walks in the, stereo, the holding cell, this mild-mannered, weak, weaker man walks in, and he's surrounded in the holding cell by thugs. You've seen that scene before. Guys who are 6'6", right? And their muscles have muscles. And, and they ha- they're tatted up, and they're pierced everywhere, and and they're missing teeth, and they've got black eyes and evidence of broken noses. They look horrible. They're thugs, big thugs. And this little guy walks into the holding cell and is just terrified of what the thugs in the cell are going to do to him. He doesn't belong. It's a way to make fun of the mild-mannered guy as he walks into the holding cell. Look at him. Look at him. He's, he's so weak. And here we have two thugs. And between the two thugs, the man who said he was gentle and lowly in heart, who loved to hang out with children, he doesn't belong there. Look at him. Look at him. He doesn't belong. Then there are the insults. The insults. Three groups of people insult Jesus that are mentioned here, the passers-by, religious leaders, and then the criminals themselves. Again, Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Matthew records that detail. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now these insults, there's four of them that are here, are loaded with irony. Uh, What what happens is the the mockers are going to say things they don't mean, but that are actually true. Irony. Let Let me show you that. Verse The first insult is in verse 40. They say, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. They think that Jesus being on the cross is the sign that he's not the master of the temple and that he's not the son of God, but him staying on the cross is actually the sign that he's the master of the temple and the son of God. Then uh, the second insult, verse 42 the, the irony is, is thick here. It says, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Absolutely. Absolutely. If he's going to save himself, if he saves himself, if he comes down from the cross and saves himself, then he can't save anybody else. If he comes down from the cross, if he saves himself, we are lost We have no hope at all. He cannot save himself and anybody else. Insult number three, also in verse 42. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. Actually, liars, you are lying. You're you're not telling the truth. If he came down from the cross, you wouldn't believe in him. How do I know that? Because he came out of the tomb and you didn't believe in him. Liars. Then insult number four, verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if God wants him. Again, hanging on the cross, it's a sign that even God doesn't like him. God has rejected him. And the truth of the matter is that the son does the will of the father and it is to the father's great pleasure. The father delights in uh, and is displeased, we'll come back to that part, 
delights in the son in his obedience. So much so that Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus became obedient to the point of death. And in response, God the father with delight exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God, God doesn't want you. Oh, God delights in him. God delights in him. He must trust in God. He says, verse 43, um, Jesus trusts in God, mocking, uh, mocking as if he must not trust in God, but he must trust in God or he wouldn't say what he does in verse 46, which we'll come back to in just a minute. Ulrich Luz is a Swiss theologian, and he says this about this scene. As the sent one of God and as the messianic king, Jesus is now, for outsiders, definitively destroyed. A messianic king on a cross who has not victoriously overcome, a miraculous healer who cannot rescue himself, an intimate of God whom God leaves in the lurch, a divine man who does not incarnate strength in life, this is a laughable figure. And Jesus, in shame on the cross, is a figure they laugh at. So much of this scene is about the shame of Jesus. Circumstance number three, Jesus died with cosmic significance. Jesus died with cosmic significance. First, there's the darkness. The passage tells us in verse five, noon until three, the sixth until the ninth hour, your translation might say. Darkness came over all the land. It's not an eclipse. It's a supernatural act. Darkness is a symbol of judgment and sin. And, and, and there maybe is a reference here to Amos 8, 9. In the book of Amos, the prophet Amos says, in that day, the day of judgment, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Then there's the curtain of the temple that's torn in two. That shows up in, in verse uh, 51. Now, there's a, a couple of different curtains in the temple. Most people think this is the curtain uh, that separates the holy place where the priests would do their, uh, some of their daily work from the most holy place where only the high priest could enter once a year with blood for sacrifice. And in Herod's temple, this temple that was in Jerusalem, this temple that we're speaking of here, built by Herod the Great, the, the, the curtain was this massive sheet, woven cloth, woven as thick as, so I've heard, as a man's hand. And God tears it in part from top to bottom. Why? Because the temple is judged. The temple is over. The temple is not the way that you meet with God. The temple is not the way you know God. And you can have access to God. You can meet with God now. Curtain torn in two. Then there's these earthquakes that happen too. The earth shakes. There's a lot of splitting in verse 51. The earth shakes, the rocks split, the tombs split. Now, and this is one of the most strange scenes in, in all the accounts of the death of Jesus. Look at verse 52 again, and let's think about what in the world is happening. The tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. What in the world is going on? Does anybody have questions about this? I have questions about this. Matthew's the only gospel writer who records this. Why doesn't 
Why don't any of the other gospel writers record this event? There's this resurrection here of many people who show up in Jerusalem. Here are some of my questions. What kind of bodies were they raised to life with? Did they have like Lazarus, like resuscitated human bodies and then they died again? Or did they have like Jesus glorified bodies, not subject to death, disease, or decay anymore? And if they had resurrected bodies, then what happened to them? Presumably they're they're not in Jerusalem anymore, I don't think, but what happened to them? Uh, Were they translated into heaven like Jesus was? How many people are we talking about? It says many people, many holy people. And who? Uh, there's an early Christian tradition that says it's some of the saints in the early part of the Gospels. Zechariah, Simeon, Anna, they're in the early uh, chapters of Luke. How long were they in Jerusalem? Uh, were, were they there for a long weekend? What? How long, how long were they there? Why isn't this mentioned in the book of Acts? Right? Wouldn't this be great for sermon, for preaching? I'd love this. Like Peter standing up and saying, Jesus is alive. He came back from the dead. We've got a, Simeon, come on up here and tell us your story. Right? <laughs> that would be very convenient. Right? So I have questions about this. Actually, there's, there is some confusion not confusion, but a lack of clarity about the timing of these events. Um, some translations make it think like the tombs were open and the resurrection and them walking into Jerusalem happened on Friday. And some of them, I think correctly, my NIV um, correctly places the phrase after Jesus' resurrection to say that they went into uh, the, the city after the resurrection on Sunday. Now, then, then I have a problem. So if they were raised from the dead, if the tombs are open and they were raised from the dead on Friday and didn't go into Jerusalem until Sunday, what were they doing for those three days? I'm not sure about that. Actually, Alistair Roberts says he thinks that the earthquake happened. The earthquake that's referenced here is the earthquake that is, happens on Sunday morning. And the earthquake on Sunday morning opened up Jesus' tomb, and it opened tombs around him, and that's when they were resurrected, and that's when they went into the, the, the city of Jerusalem on Sunday morning. So on Friday, there's darkness, and the curtain is torn to two. On Sunday, that's when the earthquake happens. That's when the resurrection happens. That's when the, the centurion who's guarding the, he's not guarding the cross, he's guarding Jesus on the cross, he's guarding Jesus at the tomb, and that's when he says, whoo, he, surely he was the son of God. And if that's true, and I, I see the sense of that, it saves us from having to try to think about what those dear saints were doing in their tombs for days before they went into Jerusalem. That, that helps. But why, why is Matthew, why is he out of order? I think if, if that's the case, he's, he's writing these things topically. That's why Matthew does stuff. What Jesus did, Jesus' death has cosmic significance it, uh, creation itself responds. It tears apart the curtain of sin that divides us from God, and it tears apart the curtain of death that separates us from him too. Jesus' death, this is no ordinary death. Creation and death itself are turned inside out. Circumstance number four, Jesus is forsaken. Jesus died forsaken. 
You're familiar with the seven words of Jesus that he spoke on the cross. We remember, especially when we come to these scenes at the end of Matthew, that the gospel writers, they do something called narrative selectivity. That's what we call it when we think about the gospels, narrative selectivity. That is, they don't feel the need to be comprehensive. They're not contradictory with each other, but they're not comprehensive. They don't feel the need to write every detail. So you, you understand what this is like. If you're sitting around the table with your family at the end of the day, and someone says, well, tell me about your day. You don't start and say, well, the alarm went off at six o'clock, and I opened my left eye first, and then my right eye. And, and you, don't, you don't give every single detail. Some of you are thinking, I'm married to that person. But, but most normal people, right, don't give every single, you don't talk about all the red lights you sat at during the day. You don't, you don't, you don't tell us the, the, the color of the hair of the cashier at John Hurst when you were there. It's probably gray. But anyway, you don't give all those details. You you laugh because I'm telling the truth. Okay, so anyway, you don't give all of those details. And and the gospel writers exercise narrative selectivity too. They have certain themes that they want to get across, right? So uh, here's one of the words that uh, the only word that Matthew records from Jesus. He says in verse 46, in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic, and Matthew translates it. in the original, Matthew translates into Greek, and our Greek is translated into English. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, again, these are the first couple of verses of Psalm 22. There's a lot of discussion about what's happening here. One of the things that we know is that the first witnesses, those who were there, misunderstood what Jesus was saying. He says, Eli, Eli, or your translation might say, Eloi, Eloi, my God. And they think that he's calling, he's calling God. They think he's calling Elijah, Eliyah, Eliyah. That's how they would say Elijah, closer than we would. Eliyah, Eliyah. He says, Eli, Eli. They think he says, Eliyah, Eliyah. You can understand how that might happen. They think he's calling for Elijah. Elijah, the prophet of the Old Testament, who is transported directly into heaven, they think that Elijah is going to come and rescue him, or they think he's calling on Elijah to come and rescue him. And one poor soul, thinking that maybe Elijah is actually going to come, goes and gets some of that wine, not mixed with gall, but some of the sour wine, and offers it to Jesus to drink, and he drinks that. This poor guy's thinking about Elijah may be coming. He wants to be on the right side of history when Elijah shows up. And the rest of the people are saying, no, let's see if, just if Elijah comes and saves him. There's debate about whether these words that Jesus utters, are these a cry of hope or are they a cry of despair? Is he quoting Psalm 22? Because at the end of Psalm 22, there's a note of triumph and Jesus is eventually going to make it to that note of triumph in a loud voice. He's going to say, God's going to rescue me. Or is he saying these words in despair? That's what I'm inclined to think. The weight of the wrath of God against sin is pressing down on the Lord Jesus. And the words he used to describe it are forsaken. I am forsaken. Now there is mystery here, friends, mystery. 
We ought not to think in these moments about the, speak as if the Trinity itself is being torn apart, God the Father and God the Son. That's not an appropriate way to speak. It's not appropriate to speak at this point in time about the death of God, as if God the Son is dying. This is the weight of sin and God's wrath is pressing down on the God-man and Jesus is experiencing a separation, an alienation, a disapproval from God that he has never known. You could use a biblical word, Jesus is being cursed. All the way through the Bible, God blesses people. He blesses, he blesses, and he does curse. And here Jesus is experiencing the cursedness of the wrath of God, an enmity, an eternity of enmity falls on Jesus at this moment. And the Bible says, forsaken for us, our sin on God's son. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing that we can proclaim in our church. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 1 John 4.10, this is love Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, a substitute that satisfies the wrath of God for us. It's a holy moment. And it is the hope for all of us who have turned and trusted in Jesus that he is our sin bearer. He cried out, and the text says in verse 50, and died. Gave up his spirit, actually it said. Matthew doesn't say what he cried out. We might think that of John who says, uh, Jesus said, it is finished, and then gave up his spirit. Some people think this is just a cry, uh, something that was, this is what they say, loud enough that it woke the dead in the cemetery. Some people say that. But the point of this passage is that he gave up his spirit. No one took his life from from him. He laid it down for us. Final circumstance of Jesus' death. He's forsaken. Jesus died loved. Jesus is loved here. This is not mentioned until the end of the passage. Matthew has reviewed for us all of the eternal weight of Jesus' death. The pain, the suffering, the shame, the wrath. It's over. We've seen the keynote of rejection. Rejection, rejection. But there are a few, Matthew tells us, a few here faithful women who were there watching. They followed Jesus for a long time from Galilee. They've been faithfully caring for his needs. And when he's hanging on the cross, there they are watching from a distance where it's appropriate for women of their standing to be. And and Matthew names them. He doesn't name all of them. Again, he does not feel the need to be comprehensive. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, these faithful women. Not the disciples, not not Jesus' brothers, but these faithful women. And, And one man who steps forward here, 
Matthew tells us about Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know much about Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. That's why he had the right to go to Pilate, the access to go to Pilate and ask for the body. He's a secret follower of Jesus. He's rich. Actually, before we get to that, it's interesting. Uh, Jesus' death drives the disciples into hiding, and it brings Joseph out of hiding. And the text says he's rich. It's an unusual description in the Gospels to call somebody rich. The most prominent rich person thus far in the Gospels was a young rich man who came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, you, have you kept all the commandments? Yes, I've kept them all. Jesus, knowing there's one in particular he's thinking about, he says to him, well, good, then go sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. And the rich young man walks away from Jesus because he has great wealth and he loves it too much to walk away from it. Then the disciples, that's kind of shocking. Who can be saved if this rich guy isn't going to be uh, uh, saved? Because, you know, riches is a sign of God's blessing. So if you're rich, you should have God's blessing already. Why, why isn't he going to be saved? And Jesus says, oh, uh, it's impossible for the rich to be saved. Yet uh, what's impossible with human beings is possible with God. And apparently here's a guy who is a product of a miracle because Joseph is a disciple of Jesus, even though he's rich. And he does what that rich young ruler didn't do. He uses his money, his wealth, to care for a very poor man who's even lost his clothes and has no tomb. The details in the text here help us because they undo some of the objections that people have to the resurrection. Uh, that, you know, uh, they, people say, well, uh, the women were at the wrong tomb. No, they weren't the wrong tomb. It's written right here. They were at the opposite the tomb. They saw the tomb go in. They know what the tomb looks like. Or the, uh, um, they were at the wrong, uh, they, they got the wrong body. You know, there were lots of, uh, they were group uh, tombs, uh, group uh, uh, burial on that day. Your family would be buried together. And, and they probably just thought the wrong body was missing or they misplaced the body. And no, 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 it was an unused tomb. There was no one else in there. You couldn't be confused about that. Those details are here for that, for that reason. If you are a person of means, and all of us in this room, because we live in the United States in the 21st century, are people of means, but if you're a person of means, here is a hero for you in the Bible, Joseph of Arimathea, who uses the resources that God has given him to help the poor. Help a, a, and, and it's a sign of God's providence for his own dear son. After the suffering is over, God sends this man to tenderly care for the body of his son. And we're to see in this, I think, the great beauty in the passage in what Joseph does. How did Jesus die? He died unlike anyone else in all creation. He was misunderstood. He was rejected. But he is God's, God's substitute for sinners. John was right. The apostle John was right when he said, Jesus came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Brothers and sisters, consider with me again this matchless, marvelous, wonderful, great Savior. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge with gratitude and with joy this passage that speaks to us about the death of the great Lord Jesus, our Savior. 
Father, we, you know we need to hear the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins. We need to hear that over and over again because we forget it. We are perfectionists and we're given to try to earn favor with you. Some of us are not so much perfectionists as, as people given to despair over our own sin. And so we disbelieve and we doubt and we agonize. And yet we have this reminder in the Gospel of Matthew, this account of what our great Savior did for us. Help us not to forget, not forget the wonder and the marvel and the glory of the death of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. You do love us. You do love us. We know it because you sent your son to die for our sins. We give you thanks. We do so together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.